0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. I got an email after church this last Sunday from Taylor Williams expressing his uh, appreciation for everybody's uh, prayers, that he is recovering uh, quickly and doing well. I think he was supposed to have had an appointment yesterday, and I haven't heard what the results of that, uh, what the results were yet, but he will be here when I leave for Kiev, so once again... Normal schedule until next week, next week, starting next Tuesday night. I will be here next Tuesday night. No class next Thursday of next week. No class for the 6th, 13th, or 20th of January on Thursday nights. And then I will be back on the 21st. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are spiritually prepared to uh, study the Word this evening so God the Holy Spirit can use what we're studying this evening to uh, edify you, strengthen you in your spiritual life, and give you a greater understanding and appreciation for all that we have in Christ. Uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening. We're thankful that uh, you have worked in the church since the day of Pentecost in 33 AD with the beginning of the church and the unique work of God, the Holy Spirit, which has empowered and strengthened uh, those who believe in Christ, that it is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we are identified with you in your death, burial and resurrection and is through his ministry that we are strengthened and empowered that we are able to grow and that we are able to uh, glorify you. Now father, we pray as we study uh these things this morning that we will or this evening that we'll be able to focus and not get distracted by uh the things that easily come into our thinking and therefore we can uh come to fully understand what we're studying this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Acts chapter 1 and <clears throat> Starting with this lesson, we're going to get into some really interesting territory in terms of understanding the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, what happens when the church is basically given birth to, when the church begins in uh, Acts chapter 2. And all of this is related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And as we look at the opening uh, verses that I'm looking at this evening, beginning in verse 4, down through verse 8, we're really introduced to this topic of the Holy Spirit. I'll just read through those four verses so we get the entire context. I was hoping I would cover all four verses, or five verses this evening, but when I realized that I had 65 slides to go through, I thought, well, maybe not. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, But you you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, or you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now I want you to notice a few things here in these five verses, just by way of, of orientation. Is the focus is on the Holy Spirit? We have the mention of the promise of the Father in verse four. And that promise is is defined in the remainder of that sentence, which is verse five, as the baptism uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse six, in the context of that, you get this question from the disciples, Lord, is it this at this time you're going to establish the kingdom? So they clearly understand from a from their knowledge of the Old Testament. That there's this connection between the arrival of the kingdom, that is the messianic uh, kingdom that was promised in, uh, in the Old Testament, focusing upon the future uh, ruler, the descendant of David, the uh, God-Man who would rule over this messianic kingdom. They clearly see that there is a connection between uh, a ministry of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom. Uh, which is correct. So as the Lord is reminding them of what John the Baptist had promised in verse 5 in terms of the baptism of the Spirit, they're making a a legitimate and important connection between the coming of the Spirit and the kingdom. If you hold your place here and just turn over one page to the next chapter... We read that when the day of Pentecost had come, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's described in the first four verses of chapter 2. And then when Peter stands up to explain what has just happened, the verse that he goes to is a verse from Joel uh, Joel chapter 2, at the end of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, which s- speaks of what will take place at the end of what we describe as the seven-year tribulation or the beginning and, and the beginning of the millennial kingdom as you hit that transition when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom. And in that verse, as a quote from Joel two twenty-eight. States it shall come to pass in the last days that 's the last days of Israel that I, says God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall see dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will once again we have that phrase pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy and I shall signs show wonders in heaven and signs in the earth beneath. And then you skip down to verse 22. Verse 22, Peter connects this again. He says that Jesus was attested by miracles, wonders, and signs, which is what he just alluded to in verse 19. And all of this shows this connection between what happens on the day of Pentecost, this quotation from an Old Testament passage, Joel 228, which clearly is at the beginning of the kingdom, and it's the outpouring of the holy spirit so all this whole section starting with jesus reminder of the promise of of uh, of the father given through john the baptist related to the baptism of the spirit the events on the day of pentecost peter's connecting that these events in some way by quoting from joel 2:28 and the outpouring of the spirit we had to figure how does this go together Because as we have seen in previous studies, Jesus came to offer the kingdom. In Matthew 12, the kingdom was rejected. And then starting in Matthew 13, Jesus went through that series of parables to show that there would be an intervening age before the kingdom began, that this intervening age would be characterized by a number of different uh, uh, features, There would be a growth of evil along with good uh, that this age, this intervening age would end in a judgment that would be necessary, that would necessarily take place before the kingdom would come in. So we see that the kingdom was offered, the kingdom's rejected, and the kingdom is postponed. Now, as we get into Acts a little further, we'll start dealing with some of the Uh, other interpretations that have come up, especially in recent years, related to somehow we're in a form of the kingdom or the kingdom is here. It was inaugurated, but it wasn't fully established. And this is not what we really find in the scripture. What we find is a complete postponement of the kingdom, because for the, there to be the kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, there has to be a certain ministry of the Holy Spirit that we don't find today. We find something similar, but nothing that is can in any way be equated to what is promised in the Old Testament. We do not have a Davidic ruler on a literal throne in Jerusalem or any of the other uh, characteristics that are given in the Old Testament related to the kingdom. So there's no way that we can say we are in a a form of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus as the Son of Man, the future ruler of the kingdom, is seated right now, a position of passivity. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we learn from looking at Daniel 7 that he isn't given the kingdom until just prior to his return. And it is at his return that he is faced with the rebellion of the kings of the earth, as seen in as depicted in Matthew, uh, excuse me in Psalm two, and he has to he defeats the kings of the earth and establishes his his kingdom. When he establishes his kingdom, that is when the new covenant goes into effect. and we've studied the new covenant in detail, both in relation to studies on the uh, ascension of Christ, as well as studies we did in, in Hebrews, Hebrews 8 and 9, as well as studies in Revelation. So all this kind of comes back to help us understand what is going on in this particular in this particular chapter, and that is that the new covenant is not in effect. The new, there's only one new covenant that's mentioned in the Scripture, and that is the new covenant that is, that is made between God and God, and the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. And as part of that covenant, God is blessing the Gentiles, just as he did as part of the Abrahamic covenant. God made a contract. He was the uh, contractor, and um, Abraham's the contractee. And God enters into this legally binding contract and says, on the basis of this contract I'm making with you, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you; that through you I will bless all nations. So the the Gentiles, the Goyim, are the benefactors of a contract, but they are not parties of the contract. You have the same idea when you get to the New Covenant that God is the party of the first part, the contract, or He may enters into an unconditional contract with the House of Israel and the House of Judah. And as part of that contract, there is blessing also to Gentiles. Now, what we learn from Hebrews is that this new covenant is the basis for establishing a new priesthood, and that new priesthood is the priesthood that uh, Jesus Christ had as the uh, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's a change of priesthood that. And and that change of priesthood requires a change of contract. The sacrifice is established at the cross, but the contract itself doesn't go into effect until the future. But because it is future and because that is where everything is headed, there are, as it were, proleptic, that's a fancy word, meaning things that happen ahead of time in preparation for the future, there are proleptic blessings that are applied in the church age because we as the church are in Christ. We're being trained to rule and reign with Christ as members of his body in the millennial kingdom and that everything in this age is oriented in that in that direction. But we're not living under the new covenant per se right now. We are beneficiaries of its blessing components. But, we're the, but everywhere you find the new covenant mentioned and the parties to the new covenant mentioned, it is between God and Israel. There's never mention of a new covenant, uh, a new covenant with the church. And there are those who seek to read that into places on the basis of theological deduction. But you can't draw a theological deduction d- deduction unless the elements of the premise, premises are laid down somewhere. So when you have a conclusion in any sort of major syllogism, such as, uh, uh, you know, all, all men had two legs, Socrates was a man, therefore Socrates has two legs, the elements, Socrates and legs, that are in the conclusion have to be present in your major premise and your minor premise. So there is no major or minor premise that contains an element of a contract with the church. So you can't have a conclusion that includes a covenant with the church if you can't establish a major premise or a minor premise that establishes that from Scripture. So lacking any passage in Scripture that specifically states a covenant with the church, you can't get a covenant with the church in your conclusion. It's just a logical fallacy to do so. So we have, once again, we're brought back to the fact, the principle that you see ever since the Abrahamic covenant is that all the blessings that come to the human race all come through covenants that God made with Israel and with with Judah. So what we saw last time when we were looking at verse 3 is that during this 40-day period that Jesus is on the earth with his disciples before he ascends to heaven, he's teaching them with reference to the kingdom of God. Now, I pointed out last time that he's not teaching about the kingdom per se. He isn't giving Bible classes on the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. What he's doing is what he did in Matthew 13, what he did in John uh, 13 through 17. He's teaching about what the church-age believers need to be doing in order to be prepared for their position to rule and reign in the kingdom when the kingdom comes, that is our destiny. Church age believers are destined to rule and reign with Jesus. He's the high priest. Our priesthood is derivative from His high priesthood, and that is how we we relate to the uh, to the new to the new covenant. And what we have learned in our study of New Covenant passages, and I'm just going to hit a few of them in just a minute, is that the role of the Holy Spirit is critical to the inauguration and the enactment of the New Covenant. And there are specific blessings uh, related to that. So that's what Jesus has been teaching. So in Acts 1-4, he says, "...being assembled together with them." He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they hear this, in the context of discussion about the kingdom, they're starting to think this out and put two and two together, so that their question, Lord, is it now that you're establishing the kingdom, is a legitimate question to ask in light of what he has just said about the Holy Spirit. so let's look at some of these Old Testament passages about the holy spirit isaiah thirty two fifteen is a passage related to the future restoration of the Jews to the land, and the focal point is on the future until that throws our focus to the to some event in the future until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. The only passages that talk about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as I said, is like Joel 2:28, and others put this at the end of the tribulation period, and this is what begins the uh, millennial kingdom. Until the, whole, uh, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruit, fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Another passage, or actually uh, four passages from Ezekiel, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, talking about this future time, God said, then I will give them one heart, that heart here relates to mind. The word heart is a metaphor for that which is at the very center or core of something. We use that in, in English idiom many times. We talk about the heart of a matter. You go down to the store, you buy hearts of palm. You're buying something that's at the very center of something. And it often has to do with the thinking, the mentality. There are a few places where it refers to emotion and volition, but primarily in 98% of its uses, it refers to the center of thought. So God says, then I will give them. This is the restored, uh, restored Israel. I will give them one heart that is a unity of mind, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh as opposed to a stony heart or a rebellious heart. So he talks about the giving of this new spirit is in relation to the restoration of the Jews to the land. Well, we don't have a restoration of a regenerate body of Jews to the land right now. We have a political ethnic restoration but not the restoration that comes uh, at the end of the millennial uh, at the end of the tribulation. Uh, Ezekiel 36:26 speaks of the same thing. God says, "I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and I will take this heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." Ezekiel 36:27 then continues this, "I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So this presence of the Holy Spirit with the new covenant results in the obedience of the people. That's not what we find today. We have a presence of the Holy Spirit, but the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer in terms of indwelling, filling, or any of the other ministries of God the Holy Spirit is not a guarantee of obedience. It is, though, in the millennial kingdom. So it's a different, that's why I say you can't confuse what happened on the day of Pentecost and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that began then with what is depicted and described uh, by the prophets in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 37:14, I will put my spirit in you. You shall live and I will place you in your own land. See, it's related to the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel. Then he's, God says, then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Ezekiel 39:29. I will not hide my face from them anymore. For I shall have future uh, future tense there. I shall have actually future perfect in English. Uh, it's just a <clears throat> I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. Notice this pouring out of the spirit is di- is directly related to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There is a uniqueness about the role of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. To the house of Israel and house of Judah, that is will be distinct from its ministry to the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. Jeremiah thirty-two, thirty-eight, and thirty-nine, as a similar passage: "They shall be my people; I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them." Uh, We look at other passages. And, uh, for example, the central passage on the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 33, uh, God will pour out his spirit and no one will need to teach his neighbor the things about God. Every, there will be this intuitive, complete knowledge of doctrine in the millennial kingdom. That is not true today. You can't try to force it. I've heard people try to do that. But it just doesn't work. So the, the disciples are fully aware of these Old Testament promises in relationship to, uh, to Israel and that that comes at the beginning of the kingdom. So they're making a, a legitimate inference and asking a legitimate question when they say, if Lord is at this time, you're going to restore the kingdom. So as we go forward, it begins with this, uh, present active participle that's translated being a assembled and it's related to a, it's related to an aorist, an aorist tense verb there that they were already in Jerusalem when, uh, and being in, assembled together, uh, with them, uh, he commanded them. And this aorist tense, uh, verb isn't something in the past. So the present tense is, a present tense participle either happens simultaneously with the action or it could precede it a little bit, which is the normal sense here. They would have to be assembled before he would command them. And so it's probably best understood as a um adverbial participle of time while they were assembled. He commanded them not to depart uh, from Jerusalem. Now the word that's translated being assembled could mean and in some cases has the idea of fellowship around the table while they're eating or it can just mean when they're gathered together. So there's some debate uh, on this in particular, but it probably has the second meaning, just when they were assembled or gathered together uh, in the ongoing communication of doctrine, communication uh, of the Lord during this 40 days uh, before the ascension. And he tells them that they are to stay in Jerusalem. Don't depart from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the center of God's plan. We've studied many passages on that. God's heart is set on Jerusalem, uh, passages that emphasize uh, in the Old Testament that Jerusalem is, from a, from God's perspective, Jerusalem is at the center of world history. That's what um, Ezekiel refers to when he means that Ezekiel is at the center of the earth. It's the center of God's uh, plan. So they are to wait in Jerusalem and not to depart from Jerusalem, to wait for the promise of the father and the promise of the father is then specifically stated in the next verse now as you see on the screen i've added a little gr- greek in there transliterated so that just to make a couple of comments before we get into the details of this jesus explains what he means by the promise of the father god doesn't leave it up to us to guess what he, what he means It's very clear, the promise of the Father, God makes lots of promises, but Jesus is talking about one specifically. And that is related to the promise that came through John the Baptist, related to something called the baptism uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so he explains it in verse 5. For John truly baptized uh, with water. Actually, what you have at the beginning of this is a Uh, I mean, a particle that is not the normal particle for explanation, which is gar, but it is a Greek word that indicates that he is uh, giving further information or giving further uh, or expanding upon something he has already said. So he says that uh, for John, truly baptized with water, for indeed we might say John baptized with water, But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the phrase that's translated with water doesn't have a preposition. So what I've written in there is the form of the Greek word for water. There is huditi, that A-T-I ending indicates it's a dative singular, and there's no preposition. Now, dative in and of itself can just have an instrumental or uh, sense or a sense of means or instrument. If you really want to make that clear, then you add the preposition in, the Greek preposition in to it, which we have in the next phrase. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit in Numity. Now, the translator in the King James, New King James, were consistent and they used the same English preposition in both phrases. Because he understood that there's a parallel that's being drawn there, and so it's important to be consistent. The problem that we have in many translations is that when you have this phrase in numity in the Greek, it is not consistently translated with the same English prepositions. And so it gets very confusing. In my opinion, it should always be translated in the sense of an instrumental or means. Uh, in the sense of by means of the Holy Spirit. And this is the only thing that really helps us understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we have to get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit here because everything in these next couple of chapters relates to this promise that is about to be fulfilled at this particular point. So first point, the baptism of the Holy Spirit did not occur in the, in the Old Testament. It does not occur at all until Acts chapter 2. That's why every time it's mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's always in the future. In Acts 1-5, it is always in the future. So the second point is that the first baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, occurred on the day of Pentecost in approximately 33 or AD 33. Now the third point, that you should know pretty well, is that the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit has become a controversial doctrine because of the Pentecostal Charismatic Movement. The Pentecostal Charismatic Movement came out of what was known as the Holiness Movement that was uh, sort of a, a Wesleyan Methodist movement in the middle of the 19th century trying to motivate and inspire people to live moral lives and spiritual lives as opposed to uh, living like the world. And in the Holiness Movement, there was they, they developed this idea that you had two acts of grace. So you they, they were the original two-steppers. Two-stepping didn't start with Texans at the Country Western Saloon. You had the Holy Spirit two-step in the 19th century. You got part of it at the cross when you trusted Christ, but you didn't have real power for the Christian life until you dedicated yourself, or you had some sort of second, subsequent experience that came later on. It's so identified different ways by different, different, uh, different people, but that was the essence of holiness theology. By the end of the 19th century, they began to began to identify that second act of grace as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and then. Then they began to say, well, the real sign that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And that and speaking in tongues, nobody claimed to speak in tongues until uh, Agnes Osman, who was a young uh, missionary student at a Bible college up in Topeka, Kansas, and on uh, at a New Year's Eve watch service in 1900 at the end of 1900, she spoke in tongues, and that started the modern charismatic movement. And so in the early part of the charismatic movement, that's the connection, is that you're not really, you're not really going to grow or experience everything that God has for you until you have this second act of grace that comes after salvation, and the only way you know it is because you, you speak in tongues. Now, the note bene that I put up there, just another aside, is that in the Reformed tradition, now that's your Calvinists, your your most of your Amillennialists, your Covenant Theologies, and, and many Replacement Theologies, they had a problem with the baptism of the Holy Spirit because they didn't really, they, they would identify it, but they didn't really understand its full significance, and often they 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 confuse it with other things. For example. Uh, some Reformed theologians see ba- the baptism of the Holy Spirit as something that is related to regeneration prior to salvation, and they try to put regeneration only into the only into the Church Age. You also have others uh, in in the Reformed camp who try to identify the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as regeneration, and they get really confused with the Holy Spirit. And what I find fascinating historically. Is that in the, in the whole tradition of the Reformed, uh, theological movement, which are those churches, denominations, theology that, that come from Calvin and Zwingli, that in that whole movement, basically the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer in the church age is ignored. Until you get into the nineteenth century, and then the only reason they start paying attention to it is sort of a reaction to the charismatic Pentecostal people that are just growing by leaps and bounds, and all of a sudden it 's like, "Oh, we have to do something about this and and start talking about it." I had a doctoral seminar class when I was uh, working on my doctorate at Dallas, and we had uh, uh, We had to do a lot of ex- extra reading. And so I read two books, one by John Owens, who was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, and is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of all Puritan theologians in the uh, mid-17th century. And he wrote a big, thick book on the Holy Spirit. never mentions the filling of the Spirit and dwelling of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit. not mentioned it at all. Abraham Kuyper, who was one of the foremost Dutch Reformed theologians at the end of the 19th century and also served as a prime minister in Holland uh, at the time because that was sort of the golden age of Dutch Reformed theology uh, in, in uh, Holland uh, at the end of the 19th century, wrote a classic work called The Work of the Holy Spirit, and those two are considered by anybody who's Reformed to be it. Everything you ever need to know about the Holy Spirit is in those two books. Neither one of them mentioned the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, or the indwelling of the Spirit. It just isn't on the horizon of Reformed theology, because in their view of sanctification, basically the believer just needs to be obedient. It's, he has a, they have a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps view of the spiritual life. You got saved, and if you're really regenerate, you're going to be obedient. If you aren't obedient, well, you are not really saved. That's also known as lordship salvation. So the uh, Calvinists also have a problem with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem that we see coming out of the, Cal- uh, going back to the charismatic movement, is this problem comes from being dependent upon an English translation. When you base your theology on what the English says, especially the Authorized Version of the King James Version, you're going to get into trouble. Notice these two passages. Matthew 3.11 in the King James Version, John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water. Pay attention to those prepositions. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire notice the prepositions are with with and with okay now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12:13 the other key verse on the baptism of the holy spirit and if you read in the king james version in 1 Corinthians 12:13 for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles whether we be bond or free And have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now notice in Matthew three eleven, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, it looks in the English as if the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing the baptizing. That's what how it that's the ambiguity by of that phrase for by one spirit we were baptized. Also, you have two different prepositions used for the same Greek phrase. In both places, you have the Greek phrase, the preposition in plus the dative of pneuma. and you have in Numity in Matthew 3:11, translated with, and in 1 Corinthians 12:13, it's translated by. So the Charismatics came along and they said, "Wow, we have two baptisms of the Holy Spirit." In the Gospels, it is with the Holy Spirit, and that occurs at salvation. And then you have by the Holy Spirit, and that occurs after salvation. So you have two baptisms. The trouble is, it's the same phrase in the Greek in both places. You just got confused because the English translator of 1 Corinthians didn't translate the preposition the same way the translator of the Gospel translated it. What we have in 1 Corinthians 12.13 is for by one spirit, that is, in numity, we were all baptized into one body. The word for baptized is the Greek word baptizo, which is an aorist passive indicative. The subject of the verb isn't mentioned, the one who's performing the action. It's a passive construction. That means somebody is doing the baptizing to us, But it's not the Holy Spirit. In Greek, the one who performs the action of the baptizing in a passive verb construction is indicated by the preposition hupa or dia, but not by the preposition in. Trouble is, in English, when we do something with, uh, you convert a sentence to a passive construction, we do it with the the, uh, preposition by. So if we just look at this basic construction, we have the sense for by one spirit we were all baptized, we received the action of the verb, into one body, and that's indicated by this Greek preposition, ace. This gets real technical in detail, but if you don't look at the details, you end up with bad theology. So you have to pay attention to the prepositions. Let's just have a little English lesson now. Everybody, let's go back to fifth grade, or at least it was fifth grade when I went through and probably what most of you did. Now it's probably 13th grade. Which means they don't get it. Have a simple sentence. John hit the ball with a bat. The verb is an active voice verb, meaning that the subject, the grammatical subject of the sentence, performs the action of the verb. John, the grammatical subject, hits the v- ball. So the active voice represents the subject performing the action. The ball is the direct object of the verb, which means it receives the action of the verb. And then the instrument that's used to perform the action is expressed in the with clause, uh, which we would indicate is an instrument or means clause. The ball. Uh, John hit the ball by means of the bat. Now, if you flip the sentence around and render it with a passive verb, the sentence would mean the same thing, but it's left John out of the statement. And so we read the ball was hit with or by the bat. The grammatical subject now is the ball. Who's performing the action? Doesn't say, does it? The one who performs the action is no longer the grammatical subject. John's no longer the grammatical subject, but he's referred to by the phrase agent. He's the agent who performs the action. He's not the grammatical subject anymore. The ball is the grammatical subject, and the verb is now converted to a passive, was hit. And in English, often we will express uh, the object with the phrase by, and we can also express um, the subject that way. We say the ball was hit by John. So the English prep- preposition by can express both the means as well as the agent who performs the action. So in the phrase, the ball was hit with the bat, was hit is a passive voice, and the subject, the ball, Receives the action of the verb. So now if we insert John into the sentence, the ball was hit by John with the bat. The ball is the grammatical subject. The verb is was hit. It's passive verb. By John is now, now indicates the performer or the agent of the action. And by the bat indicates the means but it, it so the phrase by John or by the bat gets ambiguous in english but it's not ambiguous in greek because greek uses uh the phrase in the preposition in to indicate the agent who performs the action excuse me i got this i have this uh backwards here it uses i, I reverse that the agent is expressed by the hoopah or dia and the means is indicated by in i just got that reversed so the conclusion of all of that is is that when you apply that back to 1 Corinthians 12:13 when it says for by one spirit that is by means of the spirit it's the spirit is the means in Matthew 3:11 the Spirit is the means in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. twelve thirteen just doesn't tell us who performs the action. Matthew three eleven says that the action is performed by Jesus. The one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. In first Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul isn't concerned about who's performing the action. He just wants to emphasize the means, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, as the one who is the means of performing the action. The action. So, under point number five, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, first prophesied by John the Baptist at the incarnation. Um, I brought this over from another program, so I think I lost a couple of words. Baptism of the Holy Spirit was first prophesied by John the Baptist at the incarnation, and again by Jesus Christ in Acts one five. At each of those times, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is future. But by the time you get into the middle of Acts, it's all past. So that means it had to have taken place at the day of Pentecost. In Matthew, the subject of the active voice verb, this is point number six, in Matthew, the subject of the active voice verb is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who performs the action of baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So the second part of the verse should be translated, He shall baptize you with or by means of the holy spirit and with or by means of fire but what really helps us to understand it is the parallelism with what john does the first half of the verse and i've tried to color code this so that similar phrases in each side of the this this analogy are coded colored the same way john says i baptize you i john's the subject And he says, I'm baptizing you with water or by means of water. So John the Baptist is using water as the means of the instrument to do something, to identify them with repentance. He's using water to do that. In the same way that John the Baptist uses water to identify uh, the, the believer with repentance, He says, the one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the fire refers to something subsequent and later. Notice in the first part, when John talks about what he's doing, the new state is indicated by the Greek preposition ace uh, plus the word repentance. But in the second part, he doesn't reference what Jesus is going to identify us with, uh, what the uh, ultimate goal is. We know that's the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, but it's not mentioned in Matthew 3:11. So the point that we need to understand is this. John says, I baptize you by means of water to identify you with a new state, repentance that's parallel to how Jesus is going to use the Holy Spirit. Just as John uses water as a picture of cleansing to indicate that the, this believer has been cleansed because spiritually he's repented or changed his mind about the Messiah, just as John the Baptist uses water to depict this cleansing, Jesus is going to use the Holy Spirit as the cleansing agent in taking the corrupt, spiritually dead believer and identifying him with his death, burial, and resurrection and uh, and bringing him into the body of Christ. So there's that parallel between what John does with water is a picture of what Jesus, how Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to bring about cleansing. Think about a verse you've heard a lot, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the same imagery that's used there, is that God uses this imagery of washing, the physical washing and baptism, because it is picturing something that happens in the spiritual realm that relates to the complete cleansing that takes place, the positional cleansing that takes place in the believer at the instant of salvation when he's identified with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and placed into the body of Christ. So, Jesus uses the same same verbiage in Acts 1-5. He says, John, who's the agent and the subject, baptized, active voice, with water. By means of water. But you will be baptized. It's a future passive. The agent, though, isn't mentioned. You will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. Based on Matthew 3.11 and its parallels in Mark and Luke, who is doing the baptizing? Jesus. Who does he use to bring it about? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the instrument or the means to effect the cleansing of the believer and his identifi- identification with Christ and his death burial and resurrection and placing him into the body of Christ. We see this same sort of formula used in other baptism passages. For example, 1 Corinthians ten two, talking about the Old Testament believers that they were or the the Israelites as they left Egypt. They were all baptized, and here is passive. Who does the baptizing? Doesn't tell us who the agent of the verb is. Just tells us, just gives us a passive verb. They were all baptized or identified into Moses. Those who came for John's baptism were baptized into repentance. Church age believers are baptized into Christ. That into clause indicates the goal or direction. All were baptized into Moses, and at that time it was done by means of the cloud and by means of the sea, walking through the Red Sea following the cloud, which represented the guidance of the Lord and the Shekinah, uh the Shekinah glory. Same thing in first Corinthians twelve thirteen, by one spirit, the instrument or means, by one spirit. Uh, We were all, every single believer is identified. It's an heiress passive, no agents identified, into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Drinking is is sort of the counterpart to the pouring out, that verb that's used in the Old Testament. But pouring out is a non-technical word. And it just, it can describe anything related to the Holy Spirit. It's not specific to indwelling, filling, or uh, baptism. So, in terms of a summary, Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with Christ, just as John used water to identify the believer at his time with repentance. Very simple concept. Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with Himself. Now, in this chart, we have: I'm just John baptizes by means of water for repentance, in Matthew three eleven, Jesus does it, baptizes by means of the Spirit, but it doesn't tell us what the end result or the goal is. In 1 Corinthians ten two, doesn't tell us who the agent of baptism is. It's done by means of the cloud and the sea into Moses. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, doesn't tell us who the agent is. We're, it's done by means of the Spirit into one body. So it's really clear that you have these remarkable parallels. God is so consistent that every time you have these baptism statements, you basically have a formula indicated by these prepositions. It's just that it's rare for all the elements to be present. So, the performer of the action with John the Baptist uses water to identify the person with repentance. Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify the person with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the result is that there is a unity among believers, so that Ephesians 4 5 talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's not talking about water baptism. That's talking about the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. When we get into Acts, we'll discover that there's a that there are basically three quote Pentecosts: the one that occurs on, in Acts two, the one that occurs with the Samaritan believers, and the one that occurs with the Gentiles in Acts 10 and the ones that occur in Acts 17 with the disciples. There's four with the Acts 17 with the um, disciples of John the Baptist. Each one are at the hands of the apostles to show that there is a unity. It's not done by separate individuals, so you can't break the church down ethnically. There's not a distinction between Jew or Greek. And this is the implications that are stated in galatians three twenty seven to twenty eight that in the body of Christ, distinctions related to race, sex, and economics do not apply to our relationship to God. It does apply to different things that we can and cannot do. it doesn 't eradicate economic differences. Slaves were still slaves, masters were still masters, women were still women, men were still men. Uh, The poor were still poor, the rich were still rich. But in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic law, women could not come in beyond the court of the women in the temple. Women could not serve as priests. So there there were distinctions that women could not come into the presence of God, men could. In the New Testament, all members of the body of Christ can come into the presence of God. Now, there are distinctions. Women are not permitted to teach men doctrine, if he, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. But that doesn't have to do with their spiritual, their personal relationship with God. Whereas in the Old Testament, slaves could not get, go beyond a certain point in the temple either. Only free men could come into the presence of God. But in the church, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all have equal access to the throne of God. And that's the point of Galatians 3, 27 and 28. And then the last two points, the baptism of the Holy Spirit provides retroactive identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is the basis then for, our victor, for victory over the sin nature, Romans 6, 3 through 5 because we're identified with Christ the tyranny of the sin nature is broken not its presence we still have the same sin nature the same problems but we no longer are forced to only follow the sin nature so point 11 the baptism of the holy spirit began began the church age Matthew 16:15 uh, and, uh, compared to Acts one five eleven fifteen and seventeen Matthew sixteen fifteen Jesus speaks of the church as still future. So point number twelve the baptism of the Holy Spirit then is the basis for positional truth. And point number thirteen, it's not an experience of any kind. You can't know it by experience. You can only know it because you studied the Word of God. And then I know I'm going fast here, but I want to get to the conclusion before our time runs out. Point number 14, the baptism of the Holy Spirit places us in Christ and in his body. This is what is being formed in this age, the forming of the body of Christ. Every time somebody trusts in Christ, they become a believer, they're added to the body of Christ until that body is complete, at which time the Lord will return at the rapture. So in conclusion, our final definition The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration to identify the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that he becomes a new creature in Christ where the old things are passed away and all things are new. Now, next time, Let's look at this. Jesus quotes, uh, uh, restates that John, verse 5, John truly baptized with the water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So verse 6, when the disciples say, well, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? It's a legitimate question because they understand that there's a unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit that begins the kingdom. But this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happens isn't that which was referred to in those passages related to the establishment uh, and the inauguration, rather, the inauguration of the kingdom. And then Jesus is going to, he doesn't rebuke them. He says, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father's put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit or what happens on the day of Pentecost, this power that comes is, I think, what, what Paul describes in Romans 6 is a power to, to be free from the dominion of the sin nature. So next time we'll come back and finish up that introductory sentence and look at the ascension of Christ into heaven. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things and to come to a uh, clearer understanding of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that it is the Holy Spirit who is used to cleanse us, to identify us with the death of Christ on the cross and to bring us into a new position in Christ with new abilities, new capabilities, and new resources that then become the foundation for the a Christian life in the in this age. We pray that you will help us to understand these unique assets that we have as we continue our study in Acts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.